You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 7, to read together verses 32 through verse 36. John 7, verse 32, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Let's bow together. Father, with your word open before our eyes, we pray that our hearts might be open before you to receive your truth. We pray that you would fill us with wonder, love, and praise for our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for all that he has done for us on our behalf to make us acceptable to you and to give us his righteousness. Thank you for such a perfect Savior and a perfect salvation. And we pray now that you would open our eyes and our hearts, that we might behold in your word wonderful things, and that you, O Spirit of God, would be our teacher, we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. It was not uncommon for Jesus to obscure truth from those who would not receive truth. That, in fact, was one of the functions of the parables. Jesus spoke in parables for two reasons. One was to reveal truth to those to whom he wanted to reveal truth. The other was to conceal truth from those from whom he wanted to conceal the truth. So parables had that double function. Um, Jesus would sometimes speak in mysterious and enigmatic sayings for the very purpose of veiling the truth and keeping it from the eyes of those who would not receive the truth and had no desire to embrace the truth, who hated and warred against the truth. There, after Jesus told one of his parables, it was the parable of the sower and the soils, and this is recorded in Matthew 13 and Mark chapter 4, the disciples came up to Jesus and they asked him, Matthew 13, why do you speak to them in parables? Now listen to Jesus' answer. and He's going to quote from a judgment passage in Isaiah, but listen to how Jesus responds to this. This is why he spoke in parables. Matthew 13, verse 10, verse 11. Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now, who's the, who's the you in the passage? To you, the disciples. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, that is, to the crowds, to everybody else, it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, a prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled which says, You will keep on hearing but will not understand. You will keep on seeing but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in return and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So in answer to the question, why do you speak to them in parables, what did Jesus say? To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. To those to whom he wanted to reveal truth, they 
heard the parables, understood the parables, got the message of the truth. But to others, he said, it has not been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And one of the judgments of God through the ministry of Jesus upon those who would not receive the truth was to veil the truth to their eyes and their hearts so that they could not see the truth. Knowing that they would not respond to the truth, that they hated the truth, and they rebelled against the truth, one of the judgments of God is to veil the truth so that those who hate it cannot even hear it or see it when it is clearly presented in front of them. It is the just judgment of God to withdraw His presence from people who do not cherish His presence. It is the just judgment of God to withdraw His grace from those who will not respond to His grace and to hide truth from those who hate the truth. If a sinner loves darkness and hates the light, you know what God gives to that sinner? Blindness. Darkness. That's the judgment. If a sinner loves sin and hates righteousness, you know what the judgment of God is? To turn that sinner over to his sin and to give to that sinner the very thing that his wicked nature and his corrupt heart desires. Almost as if God says, if this is what you want, I will give you this. And then the sinner, having received what he thought was going to be a blessing, it ends up being an unbearable curse. That's the judgment of God. He turns people over to receive and to enjoy the very thing that they, their wicked heart and their corrupt nature desires. It is the blessing and mercy of God when He does not give to the sinner what the sinner desires because all the desires of a sinner are corrupt and they're wicked and they're sinful. And when with God does not give that but instead grants them grace or mercy or even regeneration, that is the grace of God. It is the judgment of God when God says to the sinner, that's what you want, that's what you get. And they get it. That was the very judgment of this group in John chapter 7. If we have seen in any of our studies in Scripture a group of people who were more prone to reject the truth and hate the truth and war against the truth, it was these men led by the Pharisees in John chapter 7. Of all the people, they had ample opportunity to see the truth and respond to it and to embrace it and to evaluate the truth claims because the one who was the truth stood in their midst, and yet they are the most unrelenting in their hostility and hatred for the one who is the truth. And one of the judgments of God upon them was to say, you want to be rid of me? You want to destroy me? Then I will let you have exactly what it is that you want. And that ended up being the judgment on the Jews and those who rejected Jesus rather than the blessing that they thought it was going to be. And that was part of the somber warning in John chapter 7, verse 34. And we only looked at half of that verse last week. Actually, we looked at a couple of verses before that, but we got halfway through verse 34, and we needed to stop because there's a phrase and some wording in verse 34 that just contains too much for us to have jumped into at the end of our time last Sunday. The first half of verse 34 is this warning, well, verse 33, for a little while longer I am with you and I go to him who sent me. Verse 34 is the somber warning. You will seek me and will not find me. You remember last week I gave you three possible things that that means? Three things, and I'll just for those of you who weren't here, I'll quickly review so you have the whole context in your mind. Jesus might have been referring to one of three things, maybe all three of these. Number one, it could be that he was, what he meant by that was that they would continue to try and persecute him, but they would not be able to. After he goes to the Father, you're going to continue to war against me, but you're not going to be able to get your hands on me. Instead, it's going to fall upon whom? His church. It might be that that's what Jesus is speaking of. It might be that he was describing their, their constant seeking for the Messiah after he left. I'm going to go to my Father, and when I'm gone, you're going to continue to seek for the Messiah and wait for Him and wait for Him, but in vain because you will never find Him. Or in other words, you will never find me because you have rejected me, and I have gone to my Father, and so you are without the Messiah that you're looking for. Or third, it might be that Jesus is referring to the day of judgment. There will come a time when you will seek my grace and my mercy and my forgiveness and what I'm offering to you now, 
But you will have rejected me, and so you will have no grace and no mercy and no forgiveness, and all you will be able to expect is the certainty of divine judgment. Any one of those three things would fit the context. It would fit the next phrase that Jesus says at the end of verse 34, and where I am, you cannot come. So it could be that Jesus means one, two, or maybe all three of those, or maybe all three of those and something else that we don't know about. But he's referring there, I think, to the withholding of grace from these people who have warred against his truth. And he is saying, you're going to seek after it, and you're not going to be able to find it in whatever form that you're seeking, because you have rejected it when it was offered to you. That was the somber warning. And we got halfway through verse 34. So today we're going to pick up in the middle of verse 34. We're going to look at the rest of this somber warning of judgment. And then we're going to look at the confusion of the Jews in verses 35 and 36. So let's look at the rest of verse 34. The first half says, you will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Now, if you're paying attention to the wording of that verse, there's something about the phrasing there that should strike you as odd. Where I am, you cannot come. Now, where was Jesus when he spoke this? He was in Jerusalem, right? He's at the Feast of Tabernacles. We've seen that. He's most likely in the temple, since there is a crowd of people standing around him. He's probably still in the temple. He's in the temple and in Jerusalem, and he says to them, Where I am, you cannot come. What does he mean by that? How can they not come there? Weren't they there? Wasn't he talking to them while they were there? They were there in the temple, right? With him. He's having a face-to-face conversation to them. With them. And he's saying, where I am, you cannot come. How is it that they could not come to the very place that they were? Isn't the fact that they were there proof that they could come there? And that they were there? What is Jesus describing here? You know what you get in the glimpse of that phrase, where I am, you cannot come? You get a glimpse at the omnipresence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where was he at the time that he was in the temple? Well, back to verse 33. Where did he say he was going to go? The presence of the Father. Where's the Father? The Father is in heaven. And he's saying, there's going to come a time, a little while, I'm going to go to the presence of the Father. And where I am, I am, present tense, ego eimi in the Greek, I am, where I am, you will not be able to come. He is describing heaven not as the, not just as the place where he was going to go, but as the very place where he presently was. He is describing heaven in verse 33 where he was going to go, and he is describing heaven in verse 34 as where he currently was. That is the omnipresence of the Son. He is saying to them, you will not, you will be shut out from heaven, and you will not be able to enter heaven where I am currently, presently, because of your unbelief and because of your sins. We get to hear a glimpse at the deity of Christ and his omnipresence. This is one of those, the Gospel of John is littered with these. A phrase here, a phrase there, a verb tense here, a verb tense there, whole passages sometimes, where you get these glimpses of the deity of Christ. And this is one of those glimpses. These, this words, this wording means is nonsense if it's not describing his omnipresence. He could currently, he could speak of heaven as a place where he currently was, present tense, and yet as a place where he came from in the past and was going back to in the future. These are the motions and the locations of his incarnation. It is His omnipresence. When we describe Jesus, because Jesus is fully God and fully man, sometimes we describe Him using words and terminology and phrases and truths which are seemingly contradictory. Let me give you an example. Jesus Christ is the eternal Word of God made flesh. So He is 100% God and 100% man. We've gone over this time and time again through the Gospel of John. 100% man, 100% God. Not 50 of each, not some weird hybrid 80 this and 20 that, 100% the nature of God, 100% 
human nature. Two natures in one person. So he is the God-man. So we can affirm anything of Jesus that was true of his humanity was true of Jesus Christ. At the same time, anything that is true of deity is true of Jesus Christ. So we could say that he was, as man, limited in his abilities and his powers. But at the same time, as God, he is omnipotent. And he can do anything. As man, we can affirm of Jesus that he was ignorant of some things, that he learned certain things. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to write and how to do language and read and all of that. He had to learn certain things. He was limited in his knowledge and understanding. But as God, he was what? Omniscient. And he knew all things. And he knew all men. And we've seen John affirm both of those, haven't we? He knew the heart of men. He knew what was in man because he was fully God. At the same time, Jesus was limited in his presence as man. But as God, he was omnipresent. And he was everywhere. Those are seemingly contradictory, but they are not contradictory. And I want to show you, in John's Gospel, this is not the only place that John does this. He does this time and again throughout the Gospel, this little glimpse at his omnipresence. And I want you to see it. Look at John 8. It's just across the page for me, but maybe it's, if you've got a MacArthur Study Bible, it's 15 pages back for you with all the notes. John 8, verse 14. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Now there he speaks of heaven as the place where he what? He came from and to where he was going in the future. He came from that place in the past. He's going back to that place in the future. Look at John 8, verse 21. Then he said to them again, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now do you notice that's almost the same phrase as in verse 34 of chapter 7? You notice that? Verse 34 of chapter 7 Where I am, you cannot come. Verse 21 of chapter 8, where I am going, you cannot come. He restates the same thing, but uses a different verb tense there. He's still describing heaven. Where I'm going to go, you cannot come. And what was it that kept them out? It was their sin. Because of your unbelief. Because of your unbelief, you will not be able to come to where I am going. Now look at John 12, verse 26. Verse 12, 12, verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am... There my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What is he describing there? That's heaven. But he doesn't say where I'm going. He says where I am. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I, present tense, am, there my servant will be also. So he is there. While he's saying this, he's saying, I'm in heaven. And if you serve me, then you will someday be where I currently am. Isn't that amazing? Look at John 13, verse 33. He says to the disciples, this is a conversation with the eleven. He says to the disciples, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now this he says to the disciples. But notice verse 13, verse 33, he's talking about where he was going to go. He says to the disciples, you cannot come. They say, well, how are the disciples unable to come there? Is Jesus shutting them out of heaven too? Look at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. He's saying, there is, will come a time, but you just can't go there now. They wanted to go with him wherever he went. He's saying, I'm going somewhere where you're not going to be able to follow me now, but you will eventually. Now look at John 14, verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now you have probably recited that verse countless times and received comfort from it. But did you notice that when Jesus spoke those words of promise, 
that he used the present tense. And he says, the place where I am going, I am, I go from here to the place where I am to prepare a place for you there where I am. And then I'm going to go from where I currently am to where I am right now and get you and take you from here to where I currently am so that you may be with me forever. Isn't that amazing? I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, where I presently am, there you will someday also be. He's describing heaven as the place where he currently was, even while he spoke these words. And look at John 17, verse 24. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer where if he was not God in human flesh, this is the most blasphemous prayer ever uttered from the lips of any man. John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, remember John 6, verse 37, all that the Father has given to me, my people, those sheep that were his, those that you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory where you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. And there he uses the present tense again. Father, I want all of those whom you have given to me as your sovereign love gift. I want all of those whom you have committed to my charge to be with me where I am. He was praying this in the garden. He's praying this with his disciples and they're nearby. They were with him, weren't they? But they weren't with him in heaven where he currently was. Can you imagine how blasphemous this would be? Back to John chapter 7 now. How blasphemous it would be if I were to say to you, look, one of these days, all of you are going to go to heaven. That's where I currently am. I'm in heaven now. One of these days, you're going to join me where I presently am. You look at me and you'd say, I think somebody stole your marbles while you were sleeping last night because you do not have all of them. You didn't wake up with all of them today to be able to say that you currently are in heaven and that someday we're going to get to come and join you where you currently are. But Jim, we are where you are at. That would be blasphemy for me to say that. The only way I could utter a phrase like that is if I were the... By the way, this is this is the beginning of a sentence of blasphemy. The only way I'd be able to utter that phrase is if I were to be the omnipotent God in human flesh. This is the only way anybody could utter a sentence like that. That you will someday go to heaven to be with me where I currently presently am. Because he resides there. J.C. Ryle says this, As God, he never ceased to be in heaven, even when he was fulfilling his ministry on earth during his incarnation. As God, he could truly say where I am and not merely where I was or where I will be. He doesn't say that in John 7. He doesn't say you're going to go to be, you cannot come where I'm going or where I'm going to be, but where I am presently. He could say that because he was God. Augustine said, He came in such a wise that he departed not thence, and he so returned as not to abandon us. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to say that again because you didn't catch that. It was Augustine. But it's such an economy of words. Listen carefully to what Augustine says. He came in such a way as that he departed not thence. In other words, he came from heaven to earth in such a manner that he did not depart entirely from heaven. And then Augustine says this, And so he returned so as not to abandon us. They say, how is it possible for him to say in a very real sense, I have left heaven and come to earth? That's what he said in John 6. I'm the bread of life that has come down out of heaven. He speaks of changing locations, but at the same time he could say, I'm still in heaven. How could he say that? How could he both come down from heaven without actually leaving heaven? Augustine kind of puts it in the reverse. Think of it this way. Is Jesus here with us today? Nod your head or shake your head. Some of you are nodding, some of you are shaking. You're a very confused group of people. He is, isn't he? Did he not depart from here and go to heaven? Did he not say, I go to be with my Father? Did he not ascend in the clouds with the, and the company of the disciples and the angels? Did he not depart from here and leave and go there? 
He did in a very real sense. Did he ever really depart from here? He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. In a very real sense, he is here presently with us. He has never left his people. But in a very real sense, he left from here and he went to there. Just as he came down from there to here without ever leaving there, and he could be here and speak of being there at the same time, and then he could leave here and go there without ever really leaving here, because he never really left there to come down here. And this is not mystical nonsense, friends. Listen, if the omnipotent, infinite, eternal, omnipresent God were to take upon himself human flesh, how would you expect him to describe his relationship to heaven? You would expect to hear him say things like, I have come from there to here, but I am there and I am here. You would expect that, wouldn't you? That is the same thing that we see Jesus describing in the Gospel of John. I have come here from there without ever leaving there, and I'm going to go back to there from here without ever leaving here. That is the infinite, eternal, omnipresent God with his people who exists everywhere. This last week, I was reading through the works of John Owen, volume one, 16 volumes sitting across the desk from me on the shelf there, and each volume is 92,000 pages, give or take a few. Small print, small margins, no pictures, and written in the 1600s, and I was reading through the first volume of that, and I fully expect to be done with all 16 volumes no time soon. But I started volume one, which is on the meditations of the glory of Christ, which has to do with the incarnation of the Son and the union of the divine nature with his human nature. And I ran across a paragraph. I thought, man, that's the very thing I was, I was preparing to preach. I was in the middle of writing my sermon when I came across this paragraph. Now listen to John Owen. Now, if you think Augustine was hard to understand, <laughs> I'm going to stop every once in a while. And I'm going to interpret this for you because I had to read through it about 15 times to get it. Hopefully you'll be able to get it on the first or second run through. Listen to Owen. And unto him, that is unto Christ, it is described on a double account. In other words, he's saying there are two things that we affirm about Jesus. First, that he came down from heaven. Secondly, that when he did so, he still continued in heaven. Which two properties give us a description of the person of Christ as declare him a full possessor of all the counsels of God. In other words, he's saying we affirm two things, that he came from heaven to earth, and yet when he left heaven and came to earth, he never ceased being in heaven. And those two things, since Scripture affirms them and we affirm them, those two things are indications to us that we have in the person of Christ the full counsel of God, that He in Him dwells all the fullness of God in bodily form. That's what he's saying. We affirm the full deity and the full humanity of Christ because those two things indicate that doctrine. Now back to Owen. He descended from heaven in His incarnation, whereby He became the Son of Man, and He is and was then in heaven in the essence and glory of His divine nature. This is the full of what we assert. He who came down from heaven was also at the same instant in heaven. This is that glorious person whereof we speak. He who being always in heaven in the glory and essence of his divine nature came down from heaven, not locally by a mutation of his residence, but by the dispensation in the assumption of our nature into personal union with himself. And by that he's saying he was always in heaven, but he came, the essence, the sense in which he came from heaven to earth was when he united himself with humanity and took our nature into personal union with himself. In that very real sense, he left heaven and came to here. This is the mystery of God incarnated in the flesh. All contained in that one little phrase in verse 34, right? You didn't catch that, did you? I didn't catch that. Where I am, he's speaking of heaven, you cannot come. Now, if the Jews had understood what he said, they would have been chilled to the bone. 
They should have fallen down and trembled at that thought. He was describing heaven because he had just spoken to the presence of the Father. He is describing heaven to them, and he is saying, that place you are not going to be able to come. What does he say when he means you cannot come? You cannot. Is he describing a lack of permission, or is he describing a lack of ability? He is describing a lack of ability, just like we have seen in John 2, in John 6, when Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot. He lacks the ability to enter into the kingdom of heaven. In John 6, no one can come to me. Nobody has the ability to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In John 6, 65, Jesus said again, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me grants it, unless the Father permits it. No man has that ability. He's not describing a lack of permission, but a lack of ability. Man is unable, because he is in unbelief, and because he hates the light, and because he hates the truth, he is by nature of his hatred for the light, unable to turn to the light from darkness. Because his nature is corrupt, he cannot, he is not able to enter into heaven. So what man cannot do because of his inability, God does in his Son, by sending his Son here, and God in the act of regeneration, in the drawing of the Holy Spirit, makes us both willing and able by an act of his grace. So he enables us and he qualifies us to enter into heaven because we in our natural state cannot. That's what he's describing to them. You will be shut out because of your unbelief and because of your unbelief and your hatred for the truth, you will not be able to go where I currently am, which is heaven. Somber warning, isn't it? Now look at their confusion. Verse 35. Then the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that he will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and to teach the Greeks, is he? What is the statement that he said, you'll seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Now that's mockery and ridicule in verse 35 and 36, by the way. That is, that is a mocking jeering of what Jesus had just said. When they say, where, where does he, you should read it like this, where does he intend to go that we will not be able to find him? Where's the only place that he would be able to go? Well, if he goes out amongst the Greeks, the pagans, the Gentiles, no self-respecting Jew would ever do that. So if he goes out there to teach them, then we won't be able to find him. Which, by the way, in the minds of a Pharisee, the only reason you would go out into the world among the Gentiles and the Greeks to teach them is if you had been such a failure among your own nation and so rejected among your own nation that the only place you could turn would be to put your tail between your legs and to rush off among the Gentiles and hope to find some ill-informed, ignorant, stupid, Hellenistic Greeks and Jews out there who knew nothing about the Scriptures that you could foist your lies upon. That's the essence of what they're saying. Where's he going to go that we won't find him? Maybe he'll go out amongst all the pagans and teach them and find some ignorant people. What type of a loser is he that that's what he would do? That's what they're joking about. They're mocking him. He has just given them a somber warning of his judgment, and they are jeering at this suggestion. This was the most unthinkable thing in their minds for a Jewish Messiah to do, to go out and teach among the Gentiles. Now, by the way, there is a note of irony here, and I want you to catch this. Here's the note of irony. The very thing that they are mockingly suggesting that he do is the very thing that their unbelief would cause to happen. Do you realize that? What did Paul do? He went out among the dispersion, the diaspora, the scattered Jews who were scattered abroad, to Corinth and Athens and Ephesus and Philippi and all of Macedonia and Rome. He went to where the Jews were at and he went into their synagogues to the Hellenistic Jews who were out among the Gentiles and he took the gospel of Christ out to the world, to the Gentile nations, and he taught the Greeks. The very thing that they suggest is unthinkable, that as a mockery, a joke, 
is the very thing that their unbelief actually caused to happen. That's the irony of it. They did not believe, and because of that, the church was born, Christ was crucified, he rose again, he ascended to the heaven, the Holy Spirit came, created the church, and the church then spread out into all of the nations, and the gospel of Christ went out to the Greeks and went out to the Jews in all of the diaspora, the dispersion. That's the irony of that. Now, what do we learn from these Jews, from these these unbelievers and their rebellion? Let me suggest a couple of things. We see in them first an example of spiritual blindness and the results of that spiritual blindness. What is it that a love for darkness, yeah, love for darkness and a hatred for the light causes? It causes blindness. Remember I suggested at the beginning, one of the things that God does as a judgment upon those who hate the light is to make them blind. And you see that in their statement. Should there have been, if they had taken Jesus' word at face value, should there have been any confusion about what he was doing or where he was going? It's been straightforward enough, has it not? A little while longer, and I'm going to the one who sent me, the Father. I'm not going to be here, and you're going to go after me, but you're not going to be able to find me because I'm not going to be here. I'm going to where I am, and you're not going to be able to get me there. How straightforward is that? What is he saying? A little while longer, I'm going to go to heaven, and you're not going to be able to come there. What did they understand? Nothing. They understand anything. They're totally confused. Where does he intend to go that we're not going to be able to get to him? You know, if you just go back one verse and listen to what he just said, there's really no mystery. He's going to the Father. That is what he said. But because they rejected that he came from the Father, and because they rejected that he was God and so was in heaven, everything that he said was confusion to them. They are totally blind to and deaf to what he has just said. Why? Because they would not embrace the truth when it was clearly stated. And one of the judgments of God is, if you will not embrace and act upon the truth when it is clearly stated, God will veil your eyes and, and, and deafen your ears to it so that you cannot embrace the truth when it is clearly stated. That's the judgment. You want darkness? I'll give you blindness. And he made them so blind. That is the result of their sin. So blind that they could not even see the truth when it was clearly stated right in front of them. A second thing that we learn and that we see in these Jews is how sinners lightheartedly mock the warnings of the gospel. You notice that? A somber warning. Should have caused them to tremble. And how do they respond to it? Where does he intend to go? Out to Greeks? What a failure. What a loser. Go out to Greeks and teach Greeks because he can accept them among his own people. What a joke. And they, with a very lighthearted mockery, spurn God's very gracious warnings of the judgment that was to come. Do you remember when you did that as an unbeliever? You ever talk to unbelievers who dismiss hell and the warnings of hell with the most idiotic and insane statements that you can possibly imagine? Things like, well, I don't believe in hell, therefore I'm not going there. Oh, yeah, well, I don't believe in prisons, therefore the judge can't send me there? Does that make any sense? That doesn't make any sense. That's just your interpretation. The Bible's a book of lies, or I don't have time for the religious nonsense. I live in a world of facts. You live in a world of faith. Blah, 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 blah. And they dismiss the warnings of hell and the gracious warnings of the gospel with the most inane and stupid statements possibly imaginable. And they mock Christianity, and they mock God, and they mock his truth. I sometimes shudder when I I just think back often to my pre-saved days, and I shudder to think of the warnings of judgment that I spurned, and I spurned them, and I mocked Christian truth, and I mocked the truth of Scripture, and I said things today, I said things back then that today I view as the most horrible of blasphemies against the warnings of Scripture about my eternal condition and my eternal salvation and the warnings of the judgment that was to come, and I mocked them, and I jeered at them, and I laughed, I played sport with them. And is it not a demonstration of the grace and the love of God that he would so long tolerate the jeerings and mockeries of his foolish creatures. 
and demonstrate love and then even die in the place of those who so long spurned his warnings of judgment. Isn't that a gracious picture of God? Isn't it a loving God we serve? That he would do that for us? He has done that for us. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that you did endure long the mockeries and the revilings of sinful men and even us. That while you were gracious enough to warn us of the judgment to come, you endured long our rejection of that truth and that you in time brought us to your Son. Thank you for such a gracious salvation and thank you again for the reminder of the consequences of rejecting truth and what it does to our hearts and hardening it. And we pray that every time that our our ears hear the preaching of your word and the declaration of your truth, that we would respond with obedience, that you might be glorified, and that our hearts may be softened and transformed, and that you would conform us to the image of Christ by your gracious and glorious spirit and the power of your truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.